1: So I spent a great big chunk of the 90s driving back and forth to a comic book store each and every week to buy up a stack of comic books. And I guess because of that, the 90s really kind of holds a special place in my heart when it comes to my comic book reading. And I think what I'm trying to say here, folks, is that I want to talk about that. Buckle in or something. I, I don't know what that was. Welcome to an all-new, all-powerful episode of Just Another Fanboy, the podcast that really hasn't been sleeping all that well lately. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and I'm here to remind you of the show we have coming up real soon. (coughs) Wow. (laughs) I have no idea where that came from. That's not true. I know exactly where it came from. I mean, I scripted it. But let's just get beyond that. Anyway, we have a couple of anniversaries happening right around the corner, and I want to put together a great big whopper of a special episode to celebrate. But here's the thing, folks. In order to do that, I'm going to need your help. I'll tell you what. Let me just play the tape. Almost 16 years ago, an average yet super awesome fanboy sat down in front of a crappy little microphone and recorded a really bad podcast episode. That fanboy, well, surprise, surprise, that was me. The podcast was just another fanboy, and the first episode posted on August 8, 2006, and I continued making episodes until I hung up the mic for good After publishing episode 131 on May 16th, 2009. Then, 10 years later, on August 29th, 2019, I came out of retirement and launched volume 2 of Just Another Fanboy, which means we got two anniversaries to celebrate, folks. On Monday, August the 8th, we're going to celebrate Just Another Fanboy turning 16. Sure, I wasn't podcasting for 10 years right in the middle of those 16, but it still counts. After that, on Monday, August the 29th, we celebrate three years of Just Another Fanboy Volume 2. And here's the thing, folks. I want you to help me celebrate. I'd like to do an episode in August that is built around your emails, your texts, and your voicemails. 785-318-6673 is the phone number. fanboy at gmail.com is the email address. And send me something. You have until the end of the day Friday, August 12th, the email or call or text. That's the deadline. You can ask me questions, You can share your favorite moments from the show. You can tell me that you like eggs or, you know, whatever. Just send me something so that we can build an episode together. Your deadline, once again, is the end of the day Friday, August 12th, and both the phone number and the email are in the show notes. I'm counting on you, folks. Don't make me cry. So yeah, it's time to rally, folks. The Just Another Fanboy podcast needs you to make this happen. Just Another Fanboy at gmail.com is the email address, and 785-318-6673 is the number. I I'll be waiting. Until then, I wanted to talk about comics from the nineties because frankly. I don't really think the the decade is as bad as folks seem to think it is. I think it it gets a bad rap when you're talking about decades in comic book history. And I think some of that, well, I think most of it has to do with two big factors. The first one is the whole style over substance thing that seemed to happen quite often throughout the 90s. Now, I don't want to say I blame the guys that left Marvel and formed Image Comics, but I think that's where a bit of it starts because every one of those guys, what was it, six, seven of them, that left Marvel to form Image Comics in the 90s, they were all artists. Some of them were writers and artists. Some of them were just artists who decided they wanted to go ahead and try their hand at writing, and they were all uh, very stylistic. They had their own... Various styles. They were very popular. I loved each and every one of them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm not trying to flip, flop, flippity, flop. I'm trying to speak is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to badmouth any of them. But what we ended up with as a result, as the, 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 the nineties kind of rolled out in front of us was a lot of books trying to ate the whole image style, which was extreme. And uh, we ended up with a lot of books, not not all of the books, but a big chunk of books in the 90s that were really more about style over substance. It was about the art. Uh, well, I'll say the the art was first and foremost, and then the story itself was kind of secondary. And unfortunately, as companies like Marvel and DC tried to, again, ape that image look they didn't always do it very well and uh so even the style over substance the style wasn't all that great the second thing i think that l- gives uh the 90s a bad reputation is the whole speculator boom which if you're not aware there was a moment at some point in the 90s where somebody decided you know what if i hold on to every number 1 issue that i purchase throughout the 90s someday that number 1 issue is going to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, just like Action Comics number one. These people, of course, didn't take into account that the reason why Action Comics number one sells for so much is because it's a very hard to find issue. There are not that many of them out there in circulation. Many of them were destroyed back in the day. But comic book companies began to fuel this idea, this collector mentality, this comic books are going to pay for my child's education 20 years from now idea that was permeating throughout the 90s. And so they threw out a bunch of variant covers and printed all kinds of number one issues. And people were buying number one issues by the brick. Heck, I'm one of them. I own many copies of Spawn number one. I own many copies of Youngblood number one. I own many copies of X-Men number one. But guess what? They, they're they not really worth much because everybody else owns many copies of the same books. So that caused a big crash. Marvel went bankrupt. Just all kinds of crap happened in the 90s due to this whole speculator boom that, that ended up coming to a head. And nowadays, we don't sell, or not we, I'm not selling comic books, but comics don't sell as many copies nowadays as they did back then. But... I'm not here to really focus on the bad because, again, my memory of the 90s, my memories, memories like the scalding of the skillet. I don't know the lyrics. My memories are very fond. I do recall some horrible books. Wolf Cap comes just right off the top of my head. And and if you're not aware, it's when Captain America became a werewolf. But I have been looking through, thanks to Mike's Amazing World, which is a website called Mike's Amazing World of Comics. You can find it at mikesamazingworld.com. You can go in there, and there's an area of the website called the newsstand where you can look at a month out of a year. Uh, For example, I went to January 1990, and it'll show you all the books that sold that month. Not the books that had a cover date of january nineteen ninety but the books that actually sold were on the newsstands in January of nineteen ninety and you can do that for every month of every year that comic books were sold. I don't know how definitive these lists are, but they they seem fairly definitive to me, but heck I've only just barely barely touched this website it's it's a it's an amazing website mike's amazing world so When I went to January of 1990, the first book that really popped out for me, because I figure if I'm going to talk about 90s comics, I'm going to start at the beginning, January of 1990. And when I went to that list, the first book that really stood out for me, the first book that came up, I'm almost going to refer to it as the book that started it all, was New Mutants. Number 87. This has an on-sale date, according to Mike'sAmazingWorld.com, of January 9th, 1990, and it sold for a dollar. was written by Louise Simonson, penciled by Rob Liefeld. The inks were by Bob Wiasik, the letters by Joe Rosen, and the colorist was Michael Rockwitz. Rockwitz! Rockwitz! Rock me, yeah! I gotta stop singing to you. I don't know that I have ever really come across that name before. Michael Rockwitz, or it could be Rockwitz. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm don't. i not 100% sure how to pronounce it. But this issue, New Mutants number 87, is probably more famous or known more as the, the book in which Cable first appeared. Cable was a creation of Rob Liefeld. And This isn't his first book as far as Rob's first book. He was on New Mutants for, I don't know, did he jump on in the previous issue? I'm not sure off the top of my head, but this is the, 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 basically we started the 90s. This is why I consider this the book that started it all. We started the 90s, January 9th, 1990, with the first appearance of Cable. And it's been a while since I've read this book. I've got it up there in my collection somewhere, but they happen to have it on the Marvel app. And so I sat down and, and gave it a read. And when I think back to probably the first time I read this issue, I, I honestly, when I, when I reread it here just a few days ago, there's a lot of it that, that I don't remember. It all felt fairly new to me and yet old at the same time, because despite how I may have felt about Rob Liefeld back in the day, looking back at his work in retrospect, I, I, is that the right word? It's almost my feelings toward him have gotten to the point where it's almost like if you've seen or read one Rob Liefeld book, you've pretty much seen them all. This book, um, because I've also read X-Force number one recently, reread that recently, and this issue, New Mutants 87, really, at least the way it opened up, was very similar to X-Force number one. And Despite the fact that I kind of opened up this whole discussion by saying I remember the 90s fondly, um, I may have been in love with this book back then. I may have been in love with Rob Liefeld back then. Looking at it now, eh, not so much. Um, now the, the, the one advantage that this issue has over some of, uh, the other books that Rob Liefeld may have been a part of is that, It's written by Louise Simonson, and she's awesome. Love Louise Simonson. She was part of the whole Death and Return of Superman thing that happens a a bit later in the 90s. We'll get to that eventually as we continue with this series of episodes looking at 90s comics. And I'm feeling a little scattered here with my thoughts because I didn't really put together a lot of notes for this thing. I've often found that if I go into an episode without a lot of notes... There are times that magic will happen in that episode, and so far I'm feeling like this is not one of them. But the purpose of this series of episodes, '90s comics this is part one is that I am going to be looking at books that are uh, showing up on Mike's Amazing World as being sold during uh, each month of each year of the '90s, and I'm going to focus on one book per episode. Uh, chronologically, as, as we go through the '90s, that my memory remember, my memory remembers that I remember fondly, that in my memories, in, in the dark corners of my mind, in the nostalgic areas of my heart, I have warm, fuzzy feelings for these issues. And whether or not that's actually going to pan out when I then sit down and read the issue that's kind of what we're going to find out here in the episode. And I've pretty much let the cat out of the bag. Issue 87 of New Mutants didn't really do a lot for me. Let me, let me try and remember and then describe kind of what happened in this issue. So we get, well, we open up the issue with members of a group called the Mutant Liberation Front. I don't know if this is their first appearance. I'm looking at MarvelFandom.com. And yes, according to MarvelFandom.com, this is the first appearance of the Mutant Liberation Front. They are made up of Wild Side, Forearm, Strobe, Reaper, Thumbelina, Tempo, Zero, and then we eventually meet the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, which is Strife. Some of these characters have appeared in other books. Some of these characters, this is their first appearance. And I don't know which ones were created by Rob Liefeld and which ones were not, but this group, the Mutant Liberation Front, just, I feel like I've seen this group over and over, whether it's been in uh, this issue. um, I know they show up in X-Force, the first issue of the X-Force. In fact, the reason why both of these issues, issue 87 of New Mutants and issue one of X-Force, both felt... Why this one made me think of X-Force One is because I believe X-Force One also opens up with these characters from the Mutant Liberation Front invading some kind of government building. That's, that's what we have going on in this issue. These, these characters, this group, is in, they're, they're invading some sort of government building, and I honestly can't remember why. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I just read this two days ago. I don't remember the purpose behind this infiltration. But whatever they're, they, they were there for, they got. But we learn after they they go through a bunch of soldiers and whatnot, and and, and escape with whatever it was they came to get. This character of Cable w- was watching them. Um, we get a bit from the from the the New Mutants themselves. Uh, who there are a number of characters who make up the New Mutants. At this point, we've got um, Skids and Rusty. Rusty Collins. Now, again, I'm going purely by memory here, but the previous issue, I believe, 86, had these two characters, Skids as a a teenage girl and Rusty as a, uh, I don't know if he's a teenager. I, I believe he was in the Navy when we first met him way back in X Factor number one. But they were captured by Freedom Force in the previous issue. Freedom Force is made up of I believe ex-members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that have gone to work for the government, but they were captured. Uh, it was part of the acts of vengeance storyline, which I, I'm not going to get into right now. Just it was kind of a villains who normally go up against, uh, certain heroes, uh, were then featured in issues with different heroes. It, they kind of did a whole switcheroo thing. I don't remember that too fondly either, but. Skids, she has some kind of power where she can create force fields of some sort that um, will deflect anything uh, coming at her or anyone in her surrounding that she projects these force fields around. And then Rusty is a, a fire guy, he's a fire starter. So they're members of the New Mutants. They're currently in government lockup. We've also got Boom Boom, Richter, Cannonball, Mirage, Wolfsbane, Warlock, and Sunspot. All of these members are, have been trapped in Asgard. I, I honestly, off the top of my head, I can't remember anything about that storyline. I feel like it was, a, it, it was its own book, but I, I don't remember. But they're trapped in Asgard. And in this issue, they find a way home. And so during bits of this issue, they are traveling through, uh, the negative zone, I believe, because they go up against the mindless ones. At one point, but they're part of the story in this issue is that they're they're finally getting out of Asgard and coming home. Everybody except for Mirage, who decides to stay in Asgard, because during whatever storyline it was that brought them to Asgard, she became a Valkyrie. And so she has decided to stay and leave the group and everybody's really sad. But then we go back to the Mutant Liberation Front, who has issued a demand to um, release Skids and Rusty uh, or they're going to do something bad. That's, again, I don't quite remember how it all fell into place. I just remember that that part was, the timeline on it was kind of funny because whatever they're doing in the opening of the book, whatever uh, the, the purpose behind their attack in the opening, I don't remember if it was just simply a, look what we can do, and now that we've shown you what we can do, here's our demand. Let these two people go, these two mutants, or you're going to see more of that. We're going to we're going to do more bad things to government places. And uh then suddenly they are invading the government facility where Skids and Rusty are being held. And again, the timeline just feels really funny. There's there's nothing in the book that makes you feel like. They made their demand and then gave the government an adequate amount of time to react to their demand. And then when the government refused to let these skids and, and Rusty free, then they attacked this facility to free them uh themselves. It was almost like uh just just the way the book was laid out. It's 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 like the MLF stood up there and said, you do this, or we're going to do this, and then hung up the phone and then immediately did the thing that they warned everybody they were going to do if their demands weren't meant. Meant? Met. Ah, lordy lord. So when they attack this government facility to free Rusty and Skids, Cable is waiting there for them. And he ultimately takes them on by himself because there is a, a member of the Mutant Liberation Front, I think it was the character of Tempo who can mess with time. She kind of slows time down and her and the rest of the team, uh, are still able to, to, to work basically outside of time. So it's, it's almost like everybody around them slows down and then they move at normal speed. And they are just basically kicking the butts of all these soldiers. Uh, cable shows up, however, and he gives them what for, and he holds his own against the group for a bit, but eventually, he is defeated. He's not able to stop them. And actually, I, I wanna I'm gonna pull up the issue really quick on my phone because <laughs> despite the fact that I just read this, I don't remember if they freed Rusty and Skids. I don't remember that at all. So let me let me just look this up on my phone real quick. Hold on, just a just a just a moment. Settle down. Let me just look it up. I am downloading the issue to my phone as I speak. So as I'm looking through this issue, um, I am Now seeing what it was that the MLF, the Mutant Liberation Front, the purpose behind attacking whatever facility it was they attacked at the beginning of the issue is was to plant a bomb and make it go splody, explode some stuff, blow some things up. I also want to mention as I'm flipping through this the character of strife. If you were to sit down and make a illustrated book that featured some of the most ridiculous looking comic book characters in all of creation strife would need to be in that book or at least his appearance in this issue because i don't know first of all i don't know what liefeld was thinking when he drew this character up because this character is totally encased in steel they're they're an armored figure with spikes running down uh, their arms and they have as many liefeld characters do big shoulder pads, this guy actually has like these big metal shoulder guards with spikes rising up off of those two. But the spikes are rising up so high that the dude who wears a helmet with these big metal fins that come out of each side of the helmet, there's no way that this guy can turn his head right to left because these spikes are so tall that his helmet would would be hindered. In its movement, it would it, the, the spikes would stop his head from moving. And I have to admit that there are times when I'm sitting here in my chair and I'm doing some work, and my shirt sleeve on my short—I you know am wearing a—I a, 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 can't talk. I'm having trouble communicating what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to get across here, folks. When I'm wearing a t-shirt, my shirt sleeves will often get caught in the back area of the arms of the chair. So I'll go to lift my arm and the 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 armrest of the chair, the back of it is inside my shirt sleeve. And so I'll go to lift my arm and it'll stop because of that hindrance and it it just after a while, after it happens at least 3 times in a row, I get really upset. Well, I have to imagine that this guy strife anytime He turns his head from the left to the right and moves about a quarter of an inch to then go clank because his helmet gets caught on one of these spikes. I mean, I have to assume that's why he's a bad guy, because he's just so full of rage at all times because he has chosen this ridiculous outfit to wear and he can't turn his head from left to right. All right, so... It does look like the MLF did uh, manage to free Rusty and Skids. And neither Rusty nor Skids, they they have no idea who the Mutant Liberation Front are. All they know is what they've seen on TV. They appear to be terrorists. So when the group makes their demand that the government free Skids and Rusty, the two of them are like, well, what? Why, why did they choose us? And then, of course, um, Mystique, who is the leader of the Freedom Force, she comes in and she's like, so what can you guys tell me about the Mutant Liberation Front? Obviously, they're friends of yours. And Skids and Rusty are very confused. They have no idea why they, they are wanted by this uh, seemingly terrorist group. But Cable tries to intervene. Uh, he Even even the mighty Cable, uh, the, the MLF is too much even for him. We are given very little information on who Cable is, where he came from. He ends up at the end of the issue, seemingly in custody of the government, but it's it's very confusing because the very end of the book, he's laying on a cot and there are two uh, what seem to be doctors uh, talking over him. Um, one of the doctors mentions that Cable needs to be guarded, so... On the one hand, the way they're talking, it feels like Cable is a government operative. Like, that's what we're trying, we're supposed to get out of this. But at the same time, the comment about guarding him makes you feel like he, is, he has been incarcerated. But we have no idea where he's from, only that he is some sort of cyborg, uh, or at least he has a cybernetic arm and uh, a cybernetic eye that glows continuously. Uh, Because whenever you see an image of him, there is um, energy flowing, shining like a star out of his out of his eye, the the same side of his body as as his uh, cybernetic arm. He also seems to have if you're just looking at this one issue, his super ability seems to be just to manifest guns out of nowhere, because on the same page, in some cases, he'll be standing there holding a rifle and then. The next panel, you see him in on the same page. The rifle looks different. And then there was at one point where I don't remember which page it was, but on on, in one panel of the page, he's holding a rifle. The next panel, we see him in on the page. He's still holding a rifle, but it looks different. And then the third panel on the page that features him, he's suddenly holding and firing a pair of Uzis. So... I honestly don't remember much about the 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 character of Cable from the '90s. I don't. I know that there was a point when I just kind of stopped paying attention to the X books, and I just I don't remember much about it about the guy. I don't remember reading any of his solo stuff. So I know that he's from the future, and I know that he's supposed to be somebody's father. I I I don't feel like I want to spoil that just in case. And and honestly, I don't remember if that's true anymore or not. But as far as what his, if he has any mutant powers, I don't know if he's a mutant or if he is what his powers are. But according to this issue, it seems to be that he can just manifest weapons. Uh, and maybe that is something his, maybe his future tech allows him to pull weapons out of like a pocket dimension or something. So it appears as if he's, he's just able to access weaponry from nowhere, but I, I they don't explain any of that anywhere. So going into this completely cold, Cable seems to be somebody who can just manifest weapons from nowhere. Either that or uh, there's there was not a lot of consistency when it came to the art. And that makes me feel like I want to talk about the art. First of all, Rob Liefeld has this reputation uh, as being a guy who cannot draw feet. And I think a, a, a lot of the reason that he got this reputation is because many of the covers that he's done features the character in such a way that their feet are covered. And because of that, one of the big Liefeld jokes is, well, has he learned how to draw feet yet? And uh, I'm not a big Liefeld defender. I'm not a big Liefeld apologist. Uh, but anytime I read one of his books, the first thing I do is I like to point out look at all the feet in this issue. I mean, there's feet all over this issue. So say what you will about the man, but anybody who still clings to this whole Rob Liefeld can't draw feet and he avoids drawing feet whenever possible, uh, that's that's a bunch of BS. Because this issue, there's feet all over the place. And I remember there being feet all over the place in X-Force issue number 1. Now, I honestly reread Youngblood number 1 not that long ago, and I don't remember how many feet showed up in that issue. But the criticism of his art in general, I, I I don't apologize for. I don't defend that. He he's very hit and miss for me. The cover of this book looks really good, but Todd McFarlane inked it. So it's not totally Rob Liefeld on the cover of this book. Um Bob Wyasek was the inker for the interiors of the book, and I don't know what he ended up bringing to this issue because it's very much a Rob Liefeld issue. And I'm always going to enjoy Liefeld's art simply for the nostalgia of it. I think I've mentioned many times that in the '90s I was uh, I pro- I would have been 17 maybe when this issue came out, but I remember first coming across Liefeld art and just feeling like it was a breath of fresh air, like it was something I had never seen before and how, for me at the time, it took comics to a whole new level. There was just something... His art was just so full of energy that um, I just fell in love with it instantly. Now, over the years, I've since redefined my opinion of his art. Um, But when I look at this issue and I think about all the other issues he he has done... This, this stands up fairly well. This, I mean, it's Liefeld. If you're going into a Liefeld book hoping for accurate depictions of anatomy and the way a body should move, if you're going into a Leifeld book not expecting every character to be gritting their teeth or posing in some fashion, then you're not going to have fun with the Liefeld book. That's, that's what his art is all about. It's about posing and gritted teeth and big guns and crazy anatomy and crazy body poses. He's just, I'm trying to really, I mean, I don't think anybody listening to this episode is unfamiliar with, with Liefeld's art. Uh, You're not getting anything special in this issue. You're not getting anything new. You're not getting anything uh, that you haven't seen before with Liefeld. At the time it was revolutionary. That's the way I would have described it at the time. Looking back at it today, it's the same old, same old when it comes to Liefeld. Uh The man's not always great at telling a story through sequential artwork. I think it works better when he has a good writer, which he does in this issue with Louis Simonson. I think when when he is putting the book together completely by himself, it doesn't always work. Uh, but that's that's my opinion. Everybody has their own. He's got a lot of fans and he's got a lot of haters. He's a very polarizing figure in comics. As far as this issue, looking back at it, the the issue that kicked off 90s comics for me, eh, that I mean that's that's how I would describe it. Eh, nostalgically. Nostalgically? Is that the right word? It it, it was fun, uh, but it was also very cluttered. There was a lot going on. This kind of has a, a combination of the the 80s storytelling with the 90s story, you know, art, the way the 90s art would tell a story. And you throw that both together and it doesn't all it doesn't always quite work because an 80s book is chock full of story. And as you start going through the 90s, again, it's more style over substance. So there's fewer panels, there's fewer uh words in the book, there's less to read. It's just more uh stuff for you to look at. And uh Yeah, those two ideas, I'm not quite finding the right word that I want to use, but those two uh, elements, the 80s writing with the 90s art kind of clash in this book, and it makes it feel in some areas like a bit of a cluster. And yet there were moments in the book that I really quite enjoyed the look of it and the way it read. So it's, it's a classic just simply because it is the first appearance of Cable and because for me, it's the book that really kicks off the nineties. I mean, first week of January, 1990. And we have, uh, probably one of the characters that, that helped define the nineties cable, uh, drawn by one of the biggest artists from the nineties who both helped, uh, elevate comics in the nineties and then helped kill comics in the nineties. I hate to say that because, uh, I understand that Rob Liefeld's a a really nice guy. Anyway, that was New Mutants number 87. I don't know what I'll be looking at next. I don't think there's any more books in in, in January of 1990 that I'm going to look at, but I feel like there were two in February. So we may do this once a month. I don't know. I'm doing a lot of these series episodes so far in season seven. Maybe at some point I'll ask everybody you know, which ones are your favorites, which ones do you want me to continue with. But at the same time, I don't know that I want to leave that up to y'all because this show is about what, what I enjoy talking about and hopefully others enjoy listening to me talk about it. Anyway, I don't know what else to say. New Mutants, 87, January 1990. Eh, we'll get to some more books, more 90s books somewhere down the road. I'll either love them or I won't. But again, they're books that I remember fondly, and I think it'll be fun to go back and see how I feel about them now. Until then, folks, my name is Steven, and I'm Just Another Fanboy. Be nice to each other. Be nice to each other. Why do I always apologize when I sing? I don't know. I got to stop doing that. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to justanotherfanboy at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 785-318-6673. Or find me on Twitter and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or else. Make sure you join the Stephen Says Stuff newsletter, a free substack at list.justanotherfanboy.com, where I will send every single podcast episode I create right to your inbox the morning of release. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Stephen and get episodes just like this one a week before anyone else. I also encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star review, and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Hi, Daddy. Good job. <gasps>